and get rid of the confusion and have everything in order. Today, let's go to 2 Corinthians 9. I was thinking about this subject of righteousness and being right a little, uh, and something came to mind that I thought I'd relate to you. This proud mother had a son in the army, and at one point they had a public display where the parents were invited and and they were going to have a marching drill and show off and all that stuff like they sometimes do. And uh, here comes the platoon or whatever it was marching down the street, and here's Mama watching. There's little Johnny, her son, marching with them. And she is so proud, and she turns to somebody and she says, Wow, this is impressive. Everybody's out of step except my little Johnny. We love to be right. We love for our kids to be right. We love for everything to be right. And you know what? Mama might not have been too far off in some respects. The majority is virtually always wrong. That's just a fact. Uh, Since Satan rebelled, mankind essentially has been wrong in everything that they've endeavored to do because they've not gone God's way, they've gone Satan's way. And it amazes me today to see people, no matter what their political affiliation, think that, I think a majority of them think that 2021 is going to be a better year than 2020. I've seen all kinds of comments about that the last few days. Oh, we got 2020 behind us. Now 2021 will be better. We get uh, Joe Biden and his bunch in there, and, and they'll do better than what we've had, and everything's going to be come up roses this year. They don't have a clue. Not even a clue. They're like lemmings running off the cliff. Everybody's just following the tail of the guy in front of him. And they're all going to fall in the sea and drown. That's what happens to lemmings. And the whole population of the earth, for the most part, is going to be destroyed in the next few years. It's starting with America, and we are going to be less than 10% shortly. Because we have all kinds of enemies lined up against us, and we have enemies in our own government who are aligned with them, and have sold us out, as Jeremiah says would happen. It's all happening just like the Scripture says, amazingly. And yet people aren't tuned with Scripture. They're not tuned with God. They have no clue, even though they may be so-called Christians of some stripe. They don't have a clue what's going on. Most of the church has no clue of what's really happening. They don't get it. They just don't get it. Talk to your relatives, your friends that were in Worldwide. Most of them are utterly clueless about what's really going on. They're just sort of drifting along, still giving lip service to the Sabbath and the Holy Days. But that's about all there is to it. And they don't know. We like to be right, don't we? And amazingly, there are only a very few, including you, who are right. A very, very few that God has called and given His truth to. 
And even most of those don't get it. And they won't. God says over 90% of them are going into the tribulation and die in famine, pestilence, and war. Over 90%. So, obviously, they're not getting it. Less than 10% will. Just under 10% will get it and come to do God's work. Now, most conversations that occur between human beings have something to do with who's right and who's wrong. And it may be something very trivial. Are we going to eat here or are we going to eat there? Well, I want to eat here, so I'm right, and you want to eat there, so we're going where I want to go. It can be quite simple. But most of the time, people have differing opinions in one way or another. So each is trying to prove that he's the one who's right, and you're wrong. Can be a big issue or a small issue. Doesn't matter. Can be little Johnny and everybody out of step but him. And yet we have to comprehend and realize that only a very few are actually in step. Now that lays a huge responsibility on anyone who understands to be sure and do what needs to be done. John Reitenbaugh had a very good Berean. I think it was, maybe it was yesterday, it was a couple days ago, about faith, something I talked about last weekend, and how we have to walk in faith. He made a very good point, I just read it this morning, where he said, the ancient Israelites didn't have trouble believing there was a God. They had seen Egypt destroyed, they'd seen the plagues come, They'd seen an incredible wind blow open the Red Sea until it was dry, and they walked through at night. They saw manna. They saw quail. They saw all kinds of things where God delivered them, and they even sang songs to him, Miriam, so on, about all the wonders that he had done. But they didn't walk in faith. They walked in a certain amount of understanding, They knew there was a God. They understood that. They understood that he had helped them yesterday, but they didn't understand that he could help them tomorrow. They couldn't make that change in their thinking. I think we still have trouble with that, and Paul talks about it. We might get into it a little bit. It's easier to believe something that has happened than something that has not. Now, you should be able to understand if if someone was in charge back here and caused this, 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 and this to happen, if that one is still in charge and says what he's going to do, should it be any great stretch to think that since he says it, this, 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 and this is going to happen? And then how does that affect us? Because you can have faith that there is a God. You can believe that. But do you trust Him and have enough belief in Him that you will go ahead and do what He says because you do believe He is God? That's where Israel got in trouble. 
They didn't have trouble understanding there was a God. They had trouble obeying him. They had trouble walking in his way. When he said, go into the promised land, it's there waiting for you. I brought you here. All you got to do is cross the river and go in. We sent spies in to check it out. And all but two said, oh, we can't go there. God can't part the Red Sea anymore. Well, he parted the Jordan. <laughs> but only their kids went through because their carcasses died in the desert. And even the spies who went in who were there didn't believe God. So somehow you have to translate this belief that there is a God into a relationship with him whereby you are motivated to do what he says because he's made some wonderful promises down here, the promised land, if you will, his kingdom, incredible promises he's made for the future. And he says, you can be there if you will do this, this, and this. And then we start balking. He even calls us uh, a stiff-necked or backsliding heifer in Hosea is one expression he uses. I don't know how many of you have tried to lead an animal that hasn't been halter broken. But they'll plant all four feet and they'll pull back so hard they'll choke themselves to death before they'll move forward. I've seen them actually faint and fall over before they'd move forward. Then you got to let loose and let them revive and start over. Of course, if you're really going to break one to lead, you have to go about it a whole different way. I understand that. But I'm just telling you, if you rope something that hasn't been taught, it'll fight you every bit of the way. And God says, Israel, you're just like that. Your nature is to rebel, not be led. And we don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told where to go. We don't want to be told how to think. Because we're right anyway. How many arguments do you go into saying, well, I'm wrong, but I'm going to argue anyway? That just doesn't work that way. I'm right. You're wrong. So, we believe there's a God. We believe His way is right, sort of. But our nature says, this seems right to me. This is what I want to do. There is a way that seems right to man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Now, what we have to internalize is that God is going to live forever. He's never going to die. He's always going to be. And he's told us that we can be with him if we will just do things his way. And his is the right way. So, against all of our nature, we have to accept that his way is the right way and do it that way. Now, how hard should that be? It's like I said last week. He only gives us, really, he summarizes it. Two things that we have to do. It's all we have to do. Love him with all our heart and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. 
That's all you have to do. That summarizes the whole law, the whole Word of God, the whole of every relationship with mankind, whatever the relationship might be. Parents, husbands, wives, kinfolks, work associates, people you meet on the street. All you have to do is those two things. The only rub is our human nature is the absolute opposite of that. We want to put ourselves first, ahead of God. He says, do this, 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 and this. And we say, oh, I'd rather do that. I'll do that tomorrow, but today I want to do this. We're, we're awful. As human beings, we're just awful. Everything we want to do, think to do, desire to do with the nature we have is contrary to God's way. And the whole world is marching in step. When the mark of the beast is clearly able to be seen in its full gory, the whole world is going to follow it except a very few who will come to Zion and obey God. The rest are going the other direction. And even the ones that wake up and realize what's happening are going to wind up dying in it because they didn't come out quick enough. Hopefully they'll repent before they die and will be in God's kingdom. That would be my prayer for them. But I don't want that to happen to you and me. We have this knowledge. We have this understanding. Now we have to walk in righteousness, not just talk about it, not just be thankful we're right, but we have to walk right. You have to walk in faith, knowing that what you're doing is in harmony with what God wants you to be doing. So, some things may be difficult. That's okay. Just do it. And along the line, you're going to come to understand, through obedience, how much better things are. You know, what we're faced with is what Paul described as the temporary pleasures of sin. Sin can be fun. All kinds of sin can be fun. They can titillate the senses. They can be, uh, to some people, drugs are fun. Oh, they get high and oh, they're just so happy. See that, but they're abusing their bodies and their minds. But it was good at the time. And drinking alcohol can be a lot of fun. People laugh and choke and have a good time drinking alcohol. And if they drink too much, however, then they have problems because they do things they wouldn't ordinarily do, like run over people with their cars, or adultery, or fornication, or hangovers, or you name it. But it's fun. And sex outside of marriage can be fun. But then you look at what it does to other people, to their marriages, to their partners, to their future partners, and the heartache and misery and the broken homes and the divorces and the children without a father and a mother, and the payment is pretty high 
for the amount of fun that was derived from what was done. Because it destroys lives. But it's hard for people to grasp that because that looks like fun. You know, skiing can be fun. Is skiing wrong? Golf can be fun. Is it wrong? No. But if you get so obsessed with it that that's all you do and that's all you think about and you don't do things you ought to do, then it becomes a sin of omission. Because you're so busy doing what's fun that isn't sin that you omit to do things that you ought to be doing. And if you're not doing them, that's a sin not of commission but of omission. You're omitting to do what you should be. So, pleasure is a very difficult and transitory thing, isn't it? Some things are just outright sin that can be fun. Other things aren't sin unless they become an obsession or something you do too much to the trouble of other things you ought to be doing. But that's human nature. That's just the way it is. So God says, walk in the right or the righteous way. So we go to this book, as I've said several times, and we find out what's right according to him. And then we do that in faith, even if it seems like there might be a penalty involved, even though it's hard or difficult. You know, he said, if you walk in righteousness, you will have many trials, many afflictions, many troubles, and even chastenings. You will have all those things if you do what's right. So people start trying to do what's right, and then they have trials, troubles, and tests, and they think, ooh, I better not do that because that causes trouble. I've heard people express that. Well, I started trying to obey God, and I had nothing but trouble. You can read in the pages of this Bible. People who began to obey God had trouble. The apostles had trouble, didn't they? When they followed Jesus Christ, people hated them, they persecuted them, they stoned them, they put them in jail, made their life, in some respects, a living hell because they were walking in righteousness. And people don't like righteousness. They just don't like it. It hurts their eyes. And therefore, they persecute anyone who tries to do so. It's just a fact of human existence. So God didn't tell us that walking rightly and correctly would be without problems. It, it, it has inherent problems because you're out of step with everybody else in the world, basically. And when you're out of step with them, they don't like it. We've all tried at some point when we learned the truth to try to educate our friends and relatives and so on, about all the wonderful things we knew and we've learned. And almost invariably, we've met resistance and ridicule and persecution and trouble and never convinced them. And 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, you're still wishing you could convince them and you can't because they have an automatic opposition to truth. It's built in the human mind and emotions. So if you do things right and righteously, 
uh, you're going to have trouble. If you do things wrong and wrongly and sinfully, you're also going to have trouble. (laughs) So we're going to have trouble either way. Well, why not select the trouble that will lead to eternal life and peace than the kind that will wind up in the lake of fire? Where are you going to wind up when it's all said and done based on what you did? That's what you have to think about. Where will this path take me and where will this path take me? Because you're going to have trouble either way. You might as well make the trouble worth something. Clear? (laughs) All right, we were headed to 2 Corinthians 9. And here in this chapter, Paul... Uh, there had been a drought and trouble, and people were having trouble getting enough to eat. So uh, word had gone out to various of the churches to get food to the brethren who didn't have food. And Paul addresses that here in the first few verses of this chapter. And he compliments uh, the people he's writing to about how ready-minded they were and how willing they were to give and to help and to share what they had with others. Uh, So he was thanking them. And he says in verse 6 then, where I want to pick it up, But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. That's a principle we ought to understand easily if we've ever planted a garden. You plant two carrot seeds, and you're not going to reap very much. You plant a hundred carrot seeds, and you're going to reap a whole lot more. You can't have something for which you didn't have a reason to produce. He which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So it's a principle. Whether you're planting seeds or whatever you're doing in life, uh, if you're generous, if you're helpful, if you're bountiful, you sow a lot of good things, you do a lot of good things, uh, you're going to receive good things back. That's the principle that he's bringing out and using planting seed as an example. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, feeling like he has to, For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what's the difference between a Grinch who doesn't want to give and someone who gives generously? What's the difference? Because you've got people that are both ways. Some people are very generous with anything. And some people will not give anything if they can help it. Time, energy, money, whatever it might be. What's the difference? There's only one difference between the two. The heart. What he purposes in his heart. His inner thinking is either selfish or it's willing to give and serve and help. You're either selfish or generous. One of the two. And we all kind of probably fall somewhere in between. But those are the two extremes. I'll give anything. The shirt off my back is an expression we use. That person give you the shirt off his back. And that one wouldn't buy you a cup of coffee if he was a millionaire. So we're all kind of somewhere in that range. 
well, Paul is encouraging them here with spiritual principles. He says there's a need, and a lot of people have responded well. And then he explains this principle. So let him give, not grudgingly. What's the purpose in your heart? It goes right back to loving God with all your heart and loving man as much as yourself. We generally like to be generous with ourselves, don't we? We are willing to spend on ourselves. Some people aren't willing to spend even on themselves. They're way off the chart on the end of that spectrum. But generally, we like to be sure we're taken care of. If we're hot, we want to be cool. If we're cold, we want to be warm. If we're hungry, we want to be fed. We make sure that we get taken care of one way or another. So we're generous when it comes to taking care of ourselves. Now, what do you purpose in your heart regarding others? What is your attitude toward others as compared to yourself? Are you also willing to have the kind of heart that is generous and giving to others? That's the way God wants us to be. So he's explaining a spiritual principle here of what is in your heart. Because what is in there is what you're going to do. You'll be either generous or selfish based on your heart. Now, we all are selfish at heart to begin with. It is conversion and beginning to think along God's lines and to change the purposes of our hearts. Now, some people, apart from God, out in society, are a generous type. And you have others who are very selfish types and everything in between. But everybody takes care of self first. That's just human nature. Now, God says, all right, I want this changed. I want your heart changed. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed to be like God. Now, he wants to give. It is my good pleasure, little children, to give you the gift of eternal life in my kingdom. His good pleasure. His heart is to do that. His heart is to share the universe with millions, billions of people, which he's going to do. And he's going to raise them to the same plane he is, as spirit beings. Same family, same level. He'll always be dad and in charge, but we'll be on the same level. My kids still call me dad. They don't go by my first name. They call me dad. Or dad. They don't call me daddy anymore. They quit that when I got to be six, I think. But I'm still dad. Now, they're grown. <laughs> Some of them are past middle age. But they're on the same level I am as human beings. Now, I may still be dad, and they still look up to me in some respects and show honor and respect to me. All of them do, whether I deserve it or not. They do, because I'm dad. Now, they're not lesser. 
It's the same in God's kingdom. We're going to be on the same level He is. But He'll be in charge and He'll always be dead. Or Christ will always be our older brother or our husband. And you've got to be on the same level to be His wife. You can't be a lesser being to be His wife. Every one of you married another human being, didn't you? You didn't marry a cow or a horse or a monkey. You married a human being. Same level. Now, God put the man in charge. Use it wisely and lovingly. He put the woman in subservience to her husband, gently and kindly, obeying him. And they don't always agree. And sometimes they got to work it out because they disagree and it's putting somebody in a bind. And you need to love each other enough that you get rid of the binds. That's what God's doing with you and me. The Father loves us. Jesus Christ or Emmanuel loves us. And He's trying to raise us to His level and get rid of the binds because we're still backsliding heifers to one degree or another. And that has to be changed so that we purpose in our heart to be like He is. That's what Paul is telling them. Purpose in your heart. If your heart is still selfish, change the heart. Work on it. You have to pray about it. Because human beings don't change much, ever. (coughs) And the ones that determine to change, change very slowly, it appears. Unless something truly devastating happens, or life-changing event might change some people's thinking pretty dramatically, pretty fast. But mostly, human beings change very slowly, if they change at all, for the good. So we have to go to God and get His help, and we're going to see that here. So every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let his attitude not to be grudging, or I have to do it, (coughs) for God loves a cheerful giver. There are people who resent the Sabbath, and they have trouble getting their mind off of mundane things, off their friends, off their relatives, off their work, off their whatever, and putting their mind on God instead. And they resent the Sabbath because it crimps their style and crimps what they want to be doing or thinking. And we have to be transformed in heart so that we look forward to it and forward to putting friends, relatives, job, everything out and devote it to God. It ought to be different than any other day. Now, if you keep it long enough and you do it right, you'll finally come to the point you just look forward to the Sabbath. You want it to be there. You don't start out that way, but you come to the point that you do. I can hardly wait for it to get here anymore. I can forget about all that stuff and relax. Don't have to worry about it. 
I don't have to worry about my kids, my friends in the world, any of that. I have to concentrate on providing something for you and serving God. <coughs> That's it. Everything else is out the window till Saturday night. Now notice verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, <coughs> that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So he says, change the purpose in your heart, and God is going to give you everything you need. He's going to give you unmerited pardon or grace and goodwill and all those things coming from Him to you. And if you're being generous and helping others and loving them and being kind to them, they will in turn respond to you in a positive way in a lot of cases, not always. There are some people you couldn't please if you hung them with a new rope. But uh, not everybody's that way. If you're kind and smiling, they tend to respond the same way. It do that. Go through a line and checking out. If you're smiling and friendly and talk to the clerk and make some comment about the nice weather or or something nice, something pleasant. Sometimes they're just there and my legs hurt. I'm ready to go home. I don't want to do this. They're not paying me enough. They got all kinds of problems. And you can see it on their face. And you make their life easier. You say something nice. It's amazing how they'll break out and smile. Just because you're a little bit nice to them. And most people aren't. <laughs> they glower at each other, the, the checkout person and the customer. But the ones that will be friendly with them receive a friendly response. And you, you can make their day just by being friendly and cooperative sometimes. It's that easy. So God is able to work with your mind as you change your heart and cause things to work well for you because you're doing it the right way, and therefore, the responses are better. He's able to do that. Verse 9, As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness remains forever. So when He tells us to hunger and thirst after righteousness... It's something he already has and will always have. And he just wants us to be like him and be right like he is. Now, Satan comes to God with a lot of arguments. He comes as our accuser. He looks at you down here, every one of you. Satan knows you quite well, every one of you. And he watches you. He can read your mind to some degree. And he can see what you do, and he immediately runs to God as a tattletale to tell God all the bad things you do. And he knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows all about you. He's the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world. 
And he has a good mind. Nobody has a memory and a mind quite like God does. But Satan was created as a very, very intelligent being. And then he went bad, and that that intelligence is misused, but it's still there. Now, it's been darkened and perverted, so it's not on the same level it was. But that darkness and perversion, he takes to God. And he accuses you of things that you did, and he accuses of things you didn't do. He does both. He would do anything to get God to turn his mind against you. And does. Every day that he goes before God with his laundry list about you and me. And God's answer is, my son died for that. That's forgiven. Don't bring that one up. Sorry, that one's forgiven. Oh, that one too. You got any more? Yeah, that one too. Well, that's all I had. But I think he's thinking this. So God goes before the throne of God constantly with your faults in mind. Now, God is there seeing them, and we pray, and he offers us forgiveness and grace and mercy. But Satan will not. So he goes absolutely contrary to God. And he is a sundowner all the way. Doom and gloom all the way. If you think negatively, you think like Satan. If you imagine what people are doing, well, they must be doing this. They must be thinking that. I know what's going on in that head. I can see what those people are thinking. And you imagine all kinds of negative things about people. You have the mind of Satan. That's a satanic mind. That's not a godly mind. You've got to repent of that. You've got to think of things that are good and profitable and peaceful and loving and kind and forgiving. That's the way we have to think. Otherwise, we're like Satan. And do you think God's going to let us in his kingdom if we think like the devil? What's he going to do with the devil? He's going to cast him out. And never allow him back again. And chain him up. And with you and me, instead of chaining us up forever where we can't influence anybody, he's just going to throw us in the lake of fire and burn us up, and that's the end of us. If we think like Satan. He will not allow satanic thinking in his kingdom. That's why Christ told us, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray that his will be done on this earth. Peace, love, security, kindness, forgiveness. That's the way God wants the whole earth to be. And it's not that way right now. So Jesus said, pray that it become that. It isn't that. Pray that it becomes that. And when it will become that is when the Father and the Son come down here and set up their kingdom, and everyone then who is loving and kind and gentle and merciful will live. And those who are hateful and imagining evil and accusative will go away. They won't be here. They'll be gone. 
because his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, his entire will is not yet done in heaven. There's peace and love there. But Satan is still allowed there. And God does not will that that continue. Now, he, in his purposes, set a specific time when Satan will be cast down and never allowed to come back. And he allotted 6,000 years for Satan to be there accusing us. And at the end of that 6,000 years, he's going to be cast down and never allowed to return. So there will be peace and God's will done in heaven. Then God is going to come to earth and cause the same thing to happen here. Are we in line with that? Are we living that way? Making peace, helping others, serving others, making life better for others. Because accusative and thinking of people's motivations and thinking about what they might or might not be doing wrong is really none of our business. It's none of our business. There is a scripture that says in almost the exact same words, I'd have to look it up, mind your own business, not everybody else's. God is their judge, you are not. God is their prosecutor, you are not. You don't need to go to God with other people's problems. That's Satan's job. That's his job. That's what he does. If you do it, you're just like him, and you're of your father, the devil. Christ made that very plain to people who thought they were righteous, the Pharisees. They were of their father, the devil, and didn't have a clue that they were. It's the way they thought. It was their heart that was selfish. God is able to give us good favor. Verse 10, Now he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food. The object of planting is to harvest so that you can eat. A farmer plants a whole lot more than he needs to eat so that others may eat. He doesn't just plant enough for himself, but for others. And multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So God is able to give us food. He's able to give us everything we need. And He is able to increase the fruits of righteousness. So if we're having trouble being righteous, that is doing right and thinking right, which is what righteousness is again, if we're having trouble with that, what do we do? We go to God who can give us more righteousness. He tells us there in Isaiah 54 that those who gather to build his temple and to finish his end time work will have his righteousness, not their own self-righteousness, which is what we have by nature. His righteousness. And he can increase that. So if you're lacking in righteousness and doing things the right way, go to God and ask for help. Because with his help, you can do the right things. Now, what was Christ's example while he was on the earth? He prayed a lot. 
he went to the Father a lot because he knew that if he sinned one time, all mankind would have to be destroyed because the wages of sin is death and every human being who's ever lived has sinned except him. And if he had sinned once, he would have had to have died for his own sin and he couldn't have died for yours. So he prayed hard and he prayed often. We allow ourselves a lot of latitude of figuring, well, I can go repent later. Well, he didn't give himself that latitude. He said, you can't do wrong once. And he sweat blood over that to be sure he never did anything wrong. Now, he's our example. And we are to be righteous as he is righteous. And that is a tough row to hoe. Let's be honest and true here. That is a tough road to hoe. Not to think wrong or do wrong. It's a tough one. But we have to accomplish it. And the only way we're going to do it is with his help so that he increases the fruits of our righteousness. What are the fruit of the Spirit? The love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the patience, and so on. Those are what we're supposed to be producing. That's the fruit we're to have to bear. And he can increase, increase the fruit of our righteousness. You have trouble being peaceful. You have trouble with your temper. You have trouble with this, with that. You go to him and ask him for help to overcome whatever it is that you struggle with. Because we all struggle with something. It's just human. We struggle with something. And most of us trouble have trouble with some things, not just one. <laughs> we're, we're prone, as the old southern preacher says, we have the prones. He went on and on about the prones. And at the end of the sermon, probably 15 minutes, he defined what the prones is. We're all prone to sin. <laughs> We're prone to do wrong in many, many ways. And that's the struggle. So he says, He can increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. Now, if we do right and we do good, and we do good for somebody else, what happens? Sometimes they go to God and thank Him for the blessing that they receive from you. So as we do good, that increases people on earth sending thanksgiving and glory to God. That He caused you to be generous or helpful to them. You know, He likes that. That's a sweet savor to Him, is the prayers and the thankfulness of the saints. People, by in general, are not thankful. They think they deserve everything they get, and they deserve what they don't get that they are to be taken care of. We're in a society today who thinks everything ought to be given to them and they shouldn't have to work for it. They've been taught communism from little children in our school system. And they think everything ought to be given to them. And have everything in common. If you got it, I should have it too. It's been drilled into their heads since kindergarten. 
And that's the way they are. Most people don't say thank you. Or if they do, it's just murmur lip service. They don't really have thankfulness in their heart. Which is where it counts. So as we do good, people give thanksgiving to God for us and for what we've done. I would love to think that if I did something for someone over here, that they would go to God and say, you know, he, he helped me. Thank you that he had that attitude. And from what you did over here, or I did, somebody says, thanks to God, and he says, you got it. Thank you for being thankful. So things you do can make God happy. Second, second hand. For the administration of this service not only supplies the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings to God. You've got these people over here in Jerusalem or wherever they may be, starving to death, and you box them up some fruit and some food and some grain, and you send it to them, and they're hungry, they're going to thank God for the generosity of His people. So he says, it's win-win. It's win-win. Let's go to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, verse 8. But unto the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The keynote of Christ's kingdom is going to be righteousness. Doing things the right way. Living the right way. That's what this is all about, is a way of life where we live the right way. And he did it. And God raised him up, back to his right hand, made him spirit again, and said, because of what you did, your righteousness is going to live forever and ever, and you're going to rule. That's what the scepter is, a rule, a rod, and it's going to be a righteous rod. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. That's what he did. He loved doing things the right way, and he hated doing them the wrong way. And he is our example that we should do as he did and walk as he walked. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows, above all humans, above all angels. He's right next to the Father in heaven at his right hand. Because he did right and not wrong. And he says, I will elevate you to sit with me in my throne as my wife if you will do right and not wrong. God has elevated him, and he says, I will elevate you to the same level. What an incredible promise. How many people on earth understand God's purpose on earth is to make us as he is as part of his family? Very few. 
I don't know of any voice that really truly proclaims that other than Herbert Armstrong and those who have come after him. It's the only place on earth that people understand the purpose of God. And God had to reveal that. <clears throat> All right, let's hit uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews right quick. I'll hurry on through these. I spent a long time back in Second Corinthians, but we're almost done. Uh, Chapter 12 of Hebrews. He talks about the cloud of witnesses that we have from the past. And he's just named a lot of them in Hebrews 11, who obeyed God and walked in faith and who will be in the kingdom of God. So he says, we have this. So let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Have you done any racing? I've done some. I mean, on my legs, not in cars. But I learned that racing is hard. I remember one time when I was in high school, we were having a track meet the next day. So a friend of mine there and I, I went over to his house in Longview to spend the night. Well, we were young, still in high school, and... Yeah, there's a track meet tomorrow, no school. So we didn't want to go to bed. We wanted to go out and do this, do that, do the other thing. Didn't really get in trouble. We just spent the whole night running around town and doing this and that and the other thing. Never went to bed. Got on the bus the next morning, really tired and really sleepy. And I was supposed to compete in the mile race the next day. And I could barely get up. I was so tired. Not even watching the rest of the track meet. I was laying there trying to catch a nap so maybe I'd feel good. <coughs> and I remember that race. I was more of a long-distance runner, not a sprinter. And there was another guy that was faster than me, but he didn't have it. For long races, he didn't have the endurance. I had more of that. But that day, I didn't have much. And I remember that race very well to this day. I've, I've been in other races, win, lose, or draw, but I don't remember them. That one I do. That was a tough race. A mile feeling like I felt. And I went and went, and he got way ahead of me. And then I slowly began to catch up with him. Every step, a nightmare. And I finally caught him. And he was beginning to puff and pant and run out. And my conditioning and my capacity to do longer runs saw me through and I beat him. I won the race. Now that's not the point. It's to brag about winning a race. It's been a long time ago. The point is... It was tough. That's the point I'm making. It's tough. But we have to run it with patience, realizing it'll be hard. It will be difficult. And the more we do, like I did that night, that doesn't work and isn't fitting in with that purpose is going to make it harder. If I'd had a good night's sleep the night before, that race wouldn't have been near as hard. Guaranteed. So all the stuff we do 
that doesn't help us and puts us back makes it even harder to run with patience the race that is set before us. And it's a race against our nature. and It's a race against Satan. So what do we do? We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and we have the same joy set before us, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We endure whatever comes our way, the cross that we bear, whatever it may be, and whatever ridicule we receive from friends and relatives and enemies or whatever, we despise the shame. We don't give in to it. We go on doing what we're supposed to be doing, even though people throw shame on us. So, what? Do what God wants done. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your own mind. We have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now, I don't know whether Christ prayed so hard that he actually, his pores let blood out. But he did pray unto blood, that is, to his crucifixion when his blood was poured out. That we know for certain. And he was praying hard and his disciples were sleeping while he prayed because he knew he was dying and they didn't get the picture. But we have to resist up until death itself and despise whatever shame they heap upon us. And they're going to heap a lot on us here at the end because if we're obeying God from Zion as a light on a hill, they will hate it. They will hate it and hate us. Obey God and the world will hate you. The beast will hate you. Satan hates you. Everybody but God will hate you. (laughs) That's fair. I'm on that. I'm with that. That's good. If he's on our side, who can be against us? That's all there is to it. And you have forgotten the exhortation, if you don't resist, which speaks to you as your children. He says then that he chastens everyone that he loves and scourges everyone he loves. Because if we're not doing right, He'll cause some trouble for us, which is chastening, like you do with a child. Some form of chastening. It can be various kinds, but trouble, until you straighten up, and then he'll ease off. Well, what's his point? Verse 10, your parents chasten you for a few days after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. His only goal with you is that you become holy and partake of His holiness forevermore. That's His goal and His purpose with you. He's not against you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. And He wants you to be in His kingdom and be holy forevermore. That's His goal. So, if we fall short of that, sometimes He gives us a little paddling to help us get our focus back so that we can be righteous and holy because we're not being that and we need to be. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous 
Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. Remember we read in Corinthians where he says, if you're generous and you're giving and loving, then God will augment and help your righteousness. So he will, through his spirit, help you be righteous for doing good. And then if you do bad, he will chasten you so that you will turn from your fruit of evil and turn to the fruit of righteousness. So whether you're doing good, he can enhance your righteousness. And when you do evil, he can chasten you and thereby enhance your righteousness. Because that's all he's after is for you to be righteous. Do the right things. Think the right things. Quit doing things that are bad or on the edge of bad or whatever. Just quit it. And you won't be paddled near as often. So he says, when God brings trouble on you, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the eternal, and don't get bitter. Live peaceably with all people, and do not let bitterness enter your mind. Period. Or you'll be like Esau and miss out. Bitterness will not be in God's kingdom. Anger and bitterness will not be tolerated. You'll just die instead. I'm going to, well, let's go quickly to Romans 10. I thought maybe I'd just skip that, but we got nothing to do. Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That's God's hope, and that's Paul's prayer. But he says some people have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Israel, as I said, understood there was a God. And a lot of people are zealous toward their idea of God, but they try to worship God without proper knowledge. John 4.24, you have to worship God in spirit and in truth. So the attitude has to be there, but the truth also has to be there. Because it isn't legitimate worship unless it's done with the truth of God, the words of God. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Their own righteousness is do it the way they think is right rather than the way God thinks is right. And that is a problem. <coughs> People think they're righteous, but they have imagined what is right instead of asking God what is right. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. The purpose of the law and of Christ is to lead us to righteousness, to doing things his way, not our way. That's what it's all about. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. 
Yeah, you're supposed to keep the law. That makes you a good person. But it only takes one sin for the law to kill you because the wages of any sin is death. And therefore, there has to be a better way because every one of them broke the law. And if you think the law is going to save you, you've got another thing coming because you're going to break it at some point and you'll have to die for your sin. So there's got to be something bigger and better to take the place of just, I'll keep the law, keep the law, like the Pharisees were and didn't keep it anyway. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise, Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from heaven. He's got his own way. I'll, I'll seek God the way I want to. I'll, bring it, I'll go up to him and I'll bring him down in my image. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ again from the dead. He was buried underground. Well, he was, he was in a tomb, but it's still underground. He was dead. But what says it? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So you can seek Christ this way. You can seek him there. You can seek him from above. You can seek him from below. But you've got to seek him his way. If it's not his way, you're not going to find him. The word of faith which we preach, which is written right here. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. <clears throat> in other words, do you understand what Christ did? He came, he lived perfectly, and he died for your sins. And if you accept that sacrifice and walk in faith, serving him, obeying him, doing the things he says then He is going to give you a gift of eternal life. You don't deserve it. Nobody deserves eternal life in God's kingdom with blessings forevermore. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, very short of it. Every one of us. So we have to have something more. And that is His life given for us, His resurrection that we might also be resurrected through forgiveness because His life was greater than all our lives combined and His not sinning once is a bigger deal than all our sins combined. So you walk in faith. That if you shall confess with your mouth, Emmanuel, and shall believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If it's written in your heart, what are you going to do? You're going to go his way. Not grudgingly, but from the heart. As you purpose in your heart, Paul said, which we already read today. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. So he believes so much from the heart that it leads to acting in a right or righteous way. That kind of belief is motivating. That kind of faith and trust is motivating. I want the carrot, therefore I'll walk after it. God gives us the carrot. <clears throat> the kingdom of God, eternal life, 
eternal peace, security, everything you could possibly dream of, he offers us to get us to go his way. And if we can transform our heart to believe that and walk that direction, it's going to happen because he wants to forgive us. He wants to give us eternal life. It isn't grudging. He loves a cheerful giver because he's one. He wants us there. Every one of us, he wants us there with all his heart. And with the mouth, confesses is made until salvation. So we we got to believe it in our heart, and we got to say it with our words. we got to do it, and we'll be there. He promises that. 2 Peter 3.13, i got two more. Second Peter 3.13. He's talking about the day of the Lord and everything down here coming apart and being dissolved. And then he says of us in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, in spite of everything that's going to happen to the billions of people on this earth, and they're all basically going to be destroyed before the millennium except for a hundred million. Nevertheless, we, the believers... According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Everything is going to be done the right way or it won't be done. And he even says in Isaiah 30, 21, in the millennium, if people decide to sin or decide to go wrong, somebody will tap them on the shoulder and say, uh-uh, that isn't allowed. We don't do that here. Repent. Go do something worthwhile instead. That's the way it'll be. You're not going to be allowed the free reign that we have today to just do anything you want. Because if you're going to have a peaceful, loving, secure earth, people cannot follow human nature. Just can't. There'll be restraints put on it. I want to be in that kingdom where everything is good. Now let's go to Revelation 22, end of the Bible. Pick it up in verse 8. I, John, saw these things and heard them, all these things that are in the book of Revelation. And when I'd heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then he said to me, See you do it not, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets... I'm doing the same work as a prophet. And of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. That's what this book says. That summarizes it right there. Worship God. And he said to me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Two more days were to go by, 2,000 years. So we were, he was on the latter end of this 6,000 years of man. And he says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now, what is the context here? It's not about 2,000 years ago. Because the end was not near. But everything that's written in this book 
is written for a specific time, and it is specifically written for those who would be alive when these prophecies began to come true. That's you and me. And he says it's going to come down to the point where it's too late. If you're filthy, you might as well stay that way. You're not going to get over, you don't have time to get over it. If you're holy and just, stay that way so that you can reap the fruits of righteousness. Right here at the end, you know, God always gives space to repent. Well, he spewed the church out of his mouth and gave us space to repent. But that space is drawing near being over. And if people don't get with it pretty quick, they'll be left out. That's what he's saying here. Right here at the end, there comes a point where it's too late. Just like the ten virgins all went to sleep. Some woke up and had oil. The others didn't. And it was too late to go find it. They could look, but they weren't going to find it. That's what he's saying right here. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Then he says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Are the commandments done away? No, you do them and you can be given right to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, had they not taken of the wrong tree, would have had right at some point, to the tree of life. And he gives us the same opportunity. And may you enter in through the gates into the city. They can go into the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. For outside it are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you to you these things in the churches. Here at the end, the churches. That's what this book is about. This book of Revelation. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride, the Spirit of God and His bride, that's us as bride candidates, and those who are selected and become His bride, actually are part of the 144,000 when they are resurrected and changed. Then the Spirit and the bride with him say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That takes us right back to Matthew 5. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. And he's saying the exact thing here as a parting shot at the end of the book of Revelation. You who are at the end, you upon whom the ends of the earth have come, if you will thirst, come to me and you will receive the water of life. But time is getting very short. We need to be about our Father's business.